This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk again with Pramila Jayapal. She represents Seattle in the House of Representatives, and she describes herself as a lifelong organizer. She's co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and she's written a wonderful book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila Jayapal, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for having me. Well, your new book tells the story of how you got into political work. You are an immigrant from India who came to the United United States in 1982 to go to college. You were not yet 17 years old. You know, my dad had very little money in his bank account. I talk about this. He had $5,000 left in his bank account. He used all of it to send me here. And when your parent makes a sacrifice like that and sends their kid across the ocean, not knowing if they're going to come back, as it turns out, we've never lived on the same continent (laughs) since I was 16. They're still in India. You know, he had a very special idea of what success meant. To him, success meant you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, because that was what would guarantee your future financial stability. Well, you started out by doing what your father wanted when you graduated. You applied for jobs in investment banking. Uh, I love the story you tell about how in one of your job interviews, you were asked what you would do in a meeting if a male colleague said, honey, go get me some coffee. What was your answer? I said I would do just what I'm going to do now. And I got up and left. <laughs> and, and, and what happened then? Well, they they called me back and they said, oh, you're exactly the kind of woman we want. You know, come back and and, uh, we'll give you a job offer. And I said, thank you very much, but no thank you. Um, And I I did not end up working for that firm. I worked for another investment banking firm in leverage buyouts um, in the mid-1980s when Mike Milken was king and leverage buyouts were really big. And I will tell you that it taught me a couple of things. First of all, it taught me what I didn't want to do for the rest of my life, and that was investment <laughs> okay. banking. So I left, and I tell people that's very important to find out what you don't want to do as much as it is to find out what you do want to do. But the other thing it taught me was very strong skills in financial uh, analysis, financial management. I'm very comfortable with numbers. I'm very comfortable with um, you know all of that. And so that has really served me well, both as when I was starting a nonprofit organization that became the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state, but also now serving on the budget committee, you know, coming up, talking to some of the world's best economists, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, Joseph Stieglitz, as I'm creating the Paycheck Recovery Act. Um, I think that that experience actually really helped to build my confidence in those areas that have been quite important. Um, And certainly as I'm calling out Wall Street now, um, I understand what that means. And even questioning Sundar Pichai (laughs) from Google the other day, I talked about how the ad exchange that Google has is sort of like um, an unregulated stock market where people can can engage in insider trading. You know, so I, I draw on these experiences all the time and what I'm doing now, even though it's not what I ended up doing with my life. So when you left investment banking, you went to the other end of society, uh, Cabrini Green in Chicago, in what is often called a bad neighborhood. But you said you liked working in what's called a bad neighborhood. How come? Well, I was tutoring Cabrini Green. It was, was, not no longer exists, but was one of um, the largest uh, projects in South Chicago 
And I really wanted, I was in graduate business school, but I really wanted to do things that mattered. And tutoring kids was something that appealed to me. And so I would make my trek down to South Chicago and, and being in the midst of that project, that housing project was formative because I saw how people lived and I saw the things that we needed to do as government to really provide safer environments, better housing for people. And then, of course, I got very deeply into Saul Alinsky and uh, community organizing in the south end of Chicago, working with Mary Houghton and the South Shore Bank. And I, I want to ask you about so- South Shore Bank because you say one meeting there changed your life. That's pretty dramatic. What kind of single meeting could change a person's life? Well, I met Mary Houghton, who was the executive director of South Shore Bank, one of the founders. And um, she introduced me to the idea that I could use my business skills for good, that I could focus on economic development as a way to make vocation and avocation the same thing. And so that was the beginning of really opening my eyes to this whole other world. I could use my business skills, but do economic development. I ended up going to Thailand and working in refugee camps and doing rural economic development. And then, of course, eventually moving into the public sector. You have one great sentence when you uh, describe your decision to leave the private sector. You say, let's be real. It takes a lot to get rid of the pressure and expectations of your family. I think every immigrant kid in college right now knows exactly what you're talking about. How did you do it? Well, I just, um, I had to trust myself. And then I had to say to my parents, look, you've given me all of the foundations. And now you have to trust me. You You have to allow me to trust myself and you have to trust me. And it was not an easy thing. And my dad, for years, even when I had started the most successful immigrant rights organization in the state, I, you know, he's there, he's meeting the governor, who's our keynote speaker, and he says, oh, yes, she likes to do this volunteer work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it just takes a lot, you know, to, to kind of change how your parents see things. But I will say that I think that they're proud of me. They scratch their, they scratch their heads many times during my career, But I just kept saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is what makes my heart happy. This is what I believe I can do to make a difference. And in the end, I had to just follow my path. So you went to Thailand and worked in a refugee camp. Then you decided to go back to India. You came back to the United States. You got married. You had a baby. You got divorced. You moved into your own place as a divorced mother. Your baby had health problems. And what was the date you moved? September 10th. 2001, Mm. day before September 11th. And you say that 9-11 was the first time in America that you felt scared, and it wasn't another terrorist attack that frightened you. That's right. It was the um, hatred that I saw, um, the xenophobia that I saw, and the incursions of civil liberties ultimately by the government in the wake of the passage of the Patriot Act and so many other things you know, the original Muslim ban was passed right after 9-11. And I saw that and I saw the sort of the the way in which patriotism, um, you know, combines with fear to suppress dissent. So all of a sudden, all these people um, with all these hate crimes and the Bush administration actually themselves in, you know, 
moving forward policies that curtailed civil liberties for people just because of where you were born or what religion you practiced. And yet, if you tried to speak up against that, somehow you were on the side of terrorists. It was us versus them, and you were with them. And it reminded me of the Japanese internment and other times in our country where um, patriotism and fear together have been used, as I said, to suppress dissent. And I felt like I needed to speak out against that. And, um, and so I did. What I thought originally was going to be just fighting individual hate crimes by some individuals against another very quickly turned into fighting the U.S. government, taking on the Bush administration, successfully winning um, uh, a lawsuit around the deportation of thousands of Somalis and then going on to constantly challenge the deportations, did secret detentions, and all of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11. You have a great story about uh, meeting your Seattle congressman who was the predecessor in the seat you now hold, Jim McDermott. Your idea was to declare the entire state of Washington a hate-free zone. He liked the idea and said, uh, where do we start? And you said, how about tomorrow? And what was his response? <laughs> he leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, who are you again? <laughs> because these are, this was just six days after 9-11 and I was saying we needed to get the governor and the mayor and everybody to come out, declare the state a hate-free st zone. You end your book with the lessons you've learned and the first one is own yourself and stay open. You say, don't try to be someone, try to do something. Explain what you mean. Well, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in politics, um, who think about who they want to be, not what they want to do. And the only reason I'm, I like being a member of Congress is because it gives me a platform to do things that I think are going to make a difference for the world. And so I just want people to be authentic to themselves, to not change themselves because they think that that's going to bring them more power and prestige, but also to think about your legacy of action, not just having a title before your name. That's great. But the only reason I like the title is because it allows me to go to the airport in the wake of the Muslim ban and threaten to storm the airport if I don't get to talk to the head of customs and, and border protection and get the people off the plane that are about to be deported on the tarmac, you know, or because I can use my position to get into a federal prison and talk to hundreds of moms and dads who have been separated from their children. So that's the action, and it has to be about the action. Um, and you've got to be real for who you are and what you believe in. And the last lesson in your book is leave space for new leadership to emerge. Don't hang on to power. But we want you to stay in power. We need you to stay in power. Well, I will stay in power for as long as I feel like there's something that I can achieve. And, you know, when I stepped down from One America, people thought I was crazy. It was 12 years. I was there as the executive director. I built it from nothing to this incredible organization that had done so much. And they said, why are you leaving? It's the height of your success. And I said, well, first of all, I'd rather leave when I'm at the height of success than when I'm on the downturn of it. Okay. Um, and secondly, you know, change is good. So it doesn't mean we're going to leave immediately. But we do have to continue to be aware that there's time for other people to come forward. And there's lots of people to come forward and do that work. 
Pramila Jayapal. Her new book is Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Pramila, thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. I love the nation. So thank you so much for what you do. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 